scripture this morning, I believe, is 146, 1 through 10. Psalm 146, 1 through 10. It says, Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourner. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. That's the word of God. As we go to the scriptures, let me pray for us again. Father in heaven, the psalm that we just read said that you open the eyes of the blind. That you are a champion for those who are oppressed. You, you set the prisoners free. And I ask that you would open our eyes now and bless us so that we enjoy your freedom. I pray that you would work through your word. And in Jesus' name, amen. Today, continuing our, our series in Exodus, I'm going to talk about worshiping God through financial giving. And I want to say from the outset, I'm not here to ask for money or to guilt anyone into giving. Giving does not make you a better Christian. In fact, God condemns giving for wrong and foolish reasons, as if we could buy his favor or as if he needed us. Isaiah chapter 1, I just, I just read it this week as part of my devotions. God is so clear that he does not need our giving. So why then do we give? That's part of what I want to look at today. And today, I don't want to talk as much about wrong giving as I do want to focus on the right way to give because I believe that that's what our passage in Exodus requires and I want to be faithful to the word of God. My prayer for today is that we would be filled with the love of God so that we would love giving in our worship. And there are three passages in Exodus that talk about people worshiping through special offerings. Today we're really going to look at two of them, but I will mention briefly what the third one is. We're looking at two of them together because I, I was trying to think of a good way to illustrate this. The, the section that we're about to look at, and in fact many times in the Bible, is organized sort of like a jelly donut. Um, when you eat a jelly donut, you don't enjoy the edges, 
You're trying to get to the middle where the most jelly is. That's the best part. That's the sweetest part. And it's not that the outer edges are bad. It's just that's not where the joy of the donut's at. You're, you're on a journey to get to the middle. I think if you could, we'd probably eat all the edges first, but I don't think that would even really be possible. In Scripture, very often, the Bible is organized so that you have an introduction and a conclusion But what you're trying to focus on is actually in the middle between those two things. And so the passage that we have today in Exodus chapter, uh, excuse me, Exodus chapter 25 is the first passage that describes a special offering or giving as a part of worship. And then the next passage that talks about it is later in chapter 30. And in the middle of those two passages, God describes how his people will worship him. And so the, the worship of Israel through the priesthood in the tabernacle is the heart of this. Enjoying the fellowship of God is the center of this act of worship. But at the beginning and the end of it, there are special offerings where people worship through giving. So the first, the first nine verses of chapter 25, the people give gifts to God for the building of the tabernacle. The second is in chapter 30, and we'll look at that briefly today too, where people each pay a price for their their redeemed life. God says, I have redeemed you out of Egypt, and so to pay back to me what I have done for you, he, he takes a collection, a specific amount, and that money goes to maintain the tabernacle. So the first offering is for the building. The second collection is for the maintenance of that tabernacle. And the focal point is the worship of God that happens in that tabernacle. God reminds his people he is their redeemer. So they pay a ransom for their lives to the Lord. And that money in turn goes to maintain the place where they meet God. Their redeemer continues his relationship with them through their giving. And I'm going to talk about both of these today because they, they form bookends for the section of Exodus that we're in, where God describes what worship will be like with that giant tabernacle, or, or it's really just, it's a very ornate and very beautiful tent that they build because they're not yet settled in the land, so they don't build a permanent temple. They build a place to worship God that they can take with them. It's significant that this section on worship both begins and ends with giving. Because our offerings to God have always been part of worship from the very beginning, even even right after the Garden of Eden. The third instance in Exodus where a special collection is taken is actually in chapter 32. And I'm only going to mention this briefly. When the nation of Israel chooses rather than to worship the Lord, but they worship a golden calf instead, Aaron passes an impromptu collection plate, takes an offering, and then makes them a golden calf from the gifts that the entire nation offered. The golden calf shows that if you are not worshiping the Lord, you will worship something else. And whatever you worship will take your time and your money and your energy. But we're not focusing on idolatry today. I'm preaching on worship that flows from a redeemed heart. So let's begin by looking at the first two passages together, beginning in Exodus chapter 25, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 9. 
The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him. You shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst." Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. Now, there are a couple of things that I want to point out from this passage, and I'll say more in a moment. But if you were confused by all of those weird things that they are collecting, we will talk about those next week. Don't worry about what they were collecting. Today, I want to talk about the fact that they were taking an offering and the way that they took it and how they gave for the worship of the Lord. Go with me instead to chapter 30, verses 11 through 16, and let's look at the second type of offering that they took that was part of their worship. So in Exodus chapter 30, just a few pages over, verse 11, the Lord again speaks to Moses about an offering. So the Lord said to Moses, When you take a census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord, when you number them, that there be no plague among them when you number them. Each one who is numbered in the census shall give this, half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary, the shekel is twenty geras, half a shekel as an offering to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered in the census from twenty years old and upward shall give the Lord's offering. The rich shall not give more, and the poor shall not give less than the half shekel when you give the Lord's offering to make atonement for your lives." You shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel and shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting, that is the tabernacle, that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord so as to make atonement for your lives. If you read through Leviticus, where all of the sacrifices and offerings that were made as part of temple worship, those are described. God over and over again demonstrates that poor people can always worship. The price of an offering is not a hindrance to worshiping the Lord. But here is the one exception where both rich and poor always make the same size offering. And the reason is this. This is for the redemption of their lives and Every life in Israel is worth the exact same amount. There is no differentiation. And God makes it clear that these gifts go to maintain the special place where his glory lives in their midst. So that they have a remembrance before God. This is all about the presence of God in their community. When we talk about the manner of Israel's giving from these two passages, I have three things in mind that I want to mention. Frequency, how often did they do this? Quantity, how much did they give? And most importantly, emotionally, how did they give? What attitude did they have 
when they gave. So I'm going to briefly mention frequency, quantity, and emotion, and then say a word about what this means for us as believers in the New Testament. So first of all, frequency. How often do they give? Well, the two offerings that we're looking at were one-offs. They were one-time special collections. They never did this again for the rest of their lives. They gave in a special way for a special need. A few weeks ago, though, Chris preached on the regular times of worship that met the continuing needs of the priesthood. So you can think of the sacrifices that were offered at Passover. You can think of the first fruits, the feast that they enjoyed as they began harvest. And you can think of the, the feast of ingathering at the end of harvest, where three times a year people came before the Lord and regularly gave a set amount of what God had blessed them with so that the ministry of the priesthood would, was supported. We didn't talk very much about giving at that time. This time, these one-off offerings, these special offerings or free will offerings, also show the, the sort of motivation and the heart attitude that should always go as giving is part of worship to the Lord. So there are regular times of giving that God institutes, three times a year at least, and then there are also irregular special occasions where God calls on his people to give. So frequency, think in two ways, regular and occasional. It's not one or the other, it's both. And I believe that that pattern holds for the New Testament church today, and I'll say a little bit more about that in a few moments. Secondly, quantity. How much did they give? Well, in the Old Testament, there were set quantities that were percentages of income that were offered as a regular portion of giving. In fact, you might be familiar with the word tithe. It was a percentage of your income. So if you were a large farmer, you did give more in one sense than a small farmer, but you both gave the same percentage of your giving, and that giving went to support the Levites, the priesthood, who continually maintained the tabernacle and who continued to minister to the Lord as, they, as Israel offered their sacrifices. The other thing to notice, though, is that the offering we look at here, the contributions for the sanctuary, is not a set quantity. Instead, God makes it very clear that every man, and later on in Exodus it shows that women also contributed to this, so that man there is not men, males, it is generic, men and women, They gave as their hearts moved them, and so there was no specific requirement. No one came and said, you must give 10%, you must give a specific amount. Rather, it was, you must give as God has moved you in your heart to give. So the quantity is both regular and systematic and occasional and based on the the giving that God motivates you within your heart. God is very specific that they are to give as God moves them, not as they were required in any specific place, in any specific law. But the most important thing to notice is the the heart attitude that they had as they gave. This is not the IRS coming around. This is not the mafia doing a shakedown. This is the people of God giving voluntarily. The text says, everyone gave as his heart moved him. So no one was under compulsion for these. And in chapter 35 of Exodus, where the collection's actually taken, so the the next section that we're in is all about instructions. They don't do anything. They just receive instructions. Chapter 35 describes this offering being 
collected. And it describes that they are so generous and joyful as they give that Moses comes to them and says, whoa, you guys have given too much. We have more than what we need. You can stop. That's the heart of generosity, the heart of joy that they have to give to the work of God so they enjoy his presence with them. So this is a giving of willing generosity. So that's, that's all under the manner of giving. What was their heart attitude like? How much did they give? How often did they give? Let me say a word about the purpose. Why did they give? You might remember the whole book of Exodus, all 40 chapters, can be summed up in a single sentence. God redeems his people for worship. God redeems his people for worship. Verse 8 of our text makes the purpose of this first offering very clear so that God might live in their midst. He says, and let them make a sanctuary for me. A sanctuary is a special sacred holy place. It's set apart. It's, it's, it's ritually cleansed and it's pure. Why do they do this? Why do they make a sanctuary? He says, that I may dwell in their midst. The purpose of these gifts and also of the collection later that was to maintain that sanctuary was so that they would have a place where God, in a sense, dwelled with him. Think about that for a moment. Think about the beginning of the Bible, the creation of the world. Think about paradise. Think about what Adam and Eve enjoyed when they walked with God. The presence of God was close. That's what Israel is about to enjoy. Think about the reality that as an Israelite, you could go to the tabernacle, to the temple, and meet with God. You could talk to a priest who would intercede for you very directly, that God was very tangible. And if that sounds fantastic to you, we actually have something way better. So don't be too excited about it. The reality is, their gifts go for the continuing maintenance of this place where they are able to experience the presence of God. Now let me say this. God sets all of this up in the context. He is the savior of Israel. He is the redeemer. He is the one who judged their oppressors and brought them through the Red Sea. So their generous hearts are motivated by the work of God that they have just seen, by his miracles, by his power, by the way he's demonstrated his love for them, by saving them, by hearing their prayers, by coming and making miracles happen so that they could leave Egypt and experience freedom and worship him. That's what motivates their hearts. But the purpose of all of this is so that they can go and worship. Now, I want to address something. It might seem strange that God would ask for gifts from his people. He's the creator. He has an endless supply of anything that he wants. He can make whatever he needs. Why does he ask his people to contribute to this offering? In fact, you might even know Psalm chapter 50. Psalm chapter 50 real clearly says, If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. I don't need anything. This is what God says to his people. So why does he ask them to give as part of their worship? I believe part of the answer is in the emotion that's accompanied these gifts. The people of God are very grateful for what God has done for them. They love him. And when you love someone, you want to give good things. So God graciously allows them to be part of what he's doing in this new and exciting place called the tabernacle, and their generous hearts want to contribute to what God is doing. I 
I've experienced this in two ways. And remember, when I was first dating Lauren, I loved to give her good things. I, I, as a single man, would go to Claire's and buy goofy little earrings that would make her laugh and give her things that she enjoyed because I loved her. She didn't make me sign a contract that said, if we are going to be in a relationship, you must give at these times, and this is the quantity of your gift, and it must be heartfelt. No, no one has a relationship that's functional that works like that. And the second place that I've experienced that is as a father. I love to give good gifts to my kids. Do not tell them what I would like to give them for Christmas, but I am already looking at things. They, they have, uh, Ibanez makes a beautiful green electric guitar that's just the perfect size for Isaac, and I don't know if we're going to do it, but I really want to give it to him because I want him to enjoy playing it. I love giving my kids good gifts because I love them. That is the attitude that God's people should have as they give. Not a begrudging, I hate to part with this money, but I love what God has done for me, and so I want to give to what he's doing. I want to give to make this ministry possible. When you love God, you want to give to him in the same way that when you love a person, you want to give good gifts to them. So God teaches his people to give as a part of their worship. And I believe it's the exact same way with us. So now, listen, we are not Israel. We are not bound by the same laws and regulations. The scriptures teach that we have a freedom that Israel did not enjoy. And in fact, I mentioned we have greater promises than they enjoy. We don't have to go to a temple to meet with God. The scripture teaches that we enjoy this Holy Spirit within us so that we always have access to the Father through Jesus Christ. So our motivation to give should actually be even higher because we enjoy the presence of God in ways that Israel never did. So let me describe from a few passages in the New Testament how the church should give. We've looked at Israel's giving. We've looked specifically at how often they gave. We've also looked a little bit at how much they gave. And we looked a little bit about the the attitude that they gave with. I'd like to do the same thing from the New Testament and look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8 with me. So 2 Corinthians chapter 8 describes very similarly how we should be motivated in our giving. Paul is writing to the church. He's actually about to take a collection for the church in Jerusalem because the church in Jerusalem is experiencing a severe famine and Christians don't have enough to meet their basic needs. And so Paul, who has gone all over the ancient world and spread the good news of Jesus, says, if you love your brothers in Jerusalem, give generously and sacrificially and help meet their needs. It's an ancient benevolence ministry. And Paul writes asking them to give. And as part of asking, he holds up the church in... in uh, Philippians as part of the example. He he actually says, the churches of Macedonia, if you were here when we preached through Philippians, Philippi is one of those churches, and he clearly has them in mind as he writes this. So 2 Corinthians chapter 8, I'm going to read verses 1 through 8. He says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, they didn't have a lot, they were suffering, 
their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. So pause right there. If you see a pastor begging for money, it's backwards. It's supposed to be the other way around. The people beg for an opportunity to express gratitude to the Lord so that they can give to the work of the ministry. Now, now go back with me. Verse 4, it says, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Verse 5, and this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, and Paul has described how gifted this church is in the letter, the first letter to the Corinthians, as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. He talks about giving as an act of grace. And then verse 8, this is one of the most important verses here. He says, I say this not as a command but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine now go with me to ver- to chapter 9 there are a few verses that we need to say there as well chapter 9 starting in verse 6 because he continues to describe how they should give he says the point is this whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. So just like we did with ancient Israel, I want to talk a little bit about frequency, I want to talk a little bit about quantity, and I want to talk a little bit about attitude. Frequency. This is very much like the offering that was collected in the Old Testament because it's a one-time offering. Paul is not raising annual or monthly or weekly support for the church in Jerusalem. This is a one-time thing. There's a famine. Hopefully the famine will not last long. Their need will no longer require this kind of giving. And yet, this is just one type of giving that the church exercises. This collection is for a particular need. And so in Israel, I said there were one-time fixed offerings. In the church, there are one-time fixed offerings that are like this. And there are also ongoing regular needs that the church has. And so giving in the church is both regular and planned. And it's also somewhat occasional. As we learn about different things that require financial giving, we may take special collections for those needs. If you have questions about that, there are a few passages that I would encourage you to read, uh, and really on your own time. So for the sake of time, if you take notes, just jot some of these down. Acts chapter 4, specifically Acts chapter 4, verses 32 to 37. You can see that the church makes giving part of their regular worship. And when Paul first wrote to the church in 1 Corinthians 16, 2, He describes frequency in this way. He tells them, and this is from the first letter to the Corinthians, on the first day of the week, each member of the church was to put aside some money as each person prospered. So if you did not have money, you weren't to feel bad because you couldn't give. In other words, giving was to be proportional to your income. 
and they were to decide before they got to church how much they would give. There's supposed to be intentionality in your giving. Their giving, even for special offerings, was to be planned and regular. We're not supposed to make emotional appeals where people feel like they have to give. Instead, we are supposed to plan to give before we come to church. So the early church had special collections, but even in their special collections, they planned and gave in a systematic way to them. Very much like our benevolence ministry, the early church ministered to the poor, and they did this for widows, that was a constant and a regular need, and they did this for places like Jerusalem that experienced special needs because of natural disasters. And you can read through the New Testament how the early church cared for widows with regular offerings. That was a constant need that would require regular faithful giving. And additionally, Paul is also very clear that those who serve in the church in full-time ministry should be paid so that they can be devoted to the ministry. And you can see that clearly in passages like 1 Corinthians 9, 6 through 11. 1 Corinthians 9, 6 through 11. Or in 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18. 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18. Both of those make it clear. Paul says, elders who serve in the laboring of the word are worthy of double honor. He makes it clear there is a legitimate way. Some people feel like the church should devote all of its giving to alleviate the poor and that we should just be a volunteer basis. But that's not what the New Testament teaches. There is a place for paying ministers as part of the operation of the church. So again, the church has consistent regular needs that require consistent faithful giving. And then sometimes there are special ways that we give to meet unique needs. So in terms of frequency, you see the pattern for the church is exactly the same as the pattern was for Israel. There are times when special needs call for special generosity. There are also regular needs that call for regular generosity. That's frequency. Now quantity, how much? This is super easy. Give as much as you want to. Give as much as you want to. The Bible talks a lot about the joy of sacrificial giving. Paul teaches very clearly that we should desire to grow in this. Some of you have heard you should give 10% of your income. That may have been true in the Old Testament, but it is never repeated in the New Testament. Instead, Paul holds up a model that says, you should be sacrificial in your generosity. You should give so much that you are not necessarily able to do some of the things that you would maybe like to do. And don't we do this for our children already? Don't we give to them in a way that sometimes we are not able to do the things that we like because we love them? Paul calls for a kind of sacrificial generosity that sometimes I believe goes beyond a percentage. But here's the flip side of that. Paul says no one should be made poor because of giving to the church. So you find there are positions for radical generosity that exceed the percentages that were required in the Old Testament. And there's also grace so that if you don't have money, you are welcome to be part of our fellowship. We love you, and we don't love people who give more and people who take less. We all come to the Lord as recipients of grace. That's why it's so important to recognize the way Paul talks about this giving in 1 Corinthians 8. He describes the giving as the grace of God, and he says, first of all, this poor church that didn't have a lot of money, they gave themselves to the Lord. Everything they had belonged to him. And then, out of that place of incredible joy where God had saved them and they loved God, then they radically and generously gave to the work of the ministry. So the quantity is not an easy answer for New Testament believers. 
How much should you give? You should give as much as you want to. And then the last thing that I want to say has to do with the emotion of giving. Recognize how joyful the church is to make sacrifices because of what God has done for them. You might remember what Jesus said. He said, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Who doesn't like treasure? Treasure is a good thing. Treasure is something that you look forward to. That treasure is the result of good ministries using money to further the kingdom, to preach the gospel, to pray with the needy, to see sinners come to repentance. When you give and gospel ministry happens, you store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. That is a good and a joyful thing to do. In a lot of ways, the Bible teaches that giving is in hope of future blessing. That's part of what Paul says in in the text we just read, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. So if you hear me say, give as much as you want to, and you think, perfect, I'm not giving anything. That means that you will also not reap anything. You will have no future reward. But if you believe that Jesus has saved your soul, and you want other people to be saved, and you want to be part of that ministry, giving is one way that you can do that. And Paul says, God loves a cheerful giver, and you will reap bountifully in the future for what you do now. Here's the thing. What, what do we do? What do we do with this as, as a result of everything that I've just said? Hopefully it hasn't been more confusing. Hopefully it's been clarifying. The New Testament gives believers an incredible amount of freedom. Here's what we do, and it's very fitting that we take communion today because we remember what Jesus did for us. The Bible says that he was rich and for our sake became poor. He is the example of how we should give because he gave everything for us. When you focus on the grace of God to you, that should lift your heart to a place where you want to give, where you may be even somewhat sad because you cannot give more. So first, remember the grace of God. Second, plan. Do not come to church and then think, ah, how much should I give while you're here? In fact, if that's you today, I would encourage you to not give at all. You need to think ahead of time about how much you should give. You may need to sacrifice ahead of time so that you can give in the future. Rather than going out for dinner, maybe you stay home and give that money to the church. Paul teaches you plan ahead of time. Lauren and I do this. She and I talk. We have agreed ahead of time. We do actually give based on a percentage so that we know ahead of time how much we will give. Sometimes we give more. And when we give more, we talk about it ahead of time and we agree on that ahead of time. Sometimes we give, like for our benevolence ministry, when we celebrate communion, we give extra beyond our regular percentage to help meet the needs of the poor. And that for us does vary dramatically. There are some months we give a lot. There are some months we don't give anything depending on how God has prospered us that month. And I believe it should be the same for all of us here. There should be a regular, consistent way that we give. There should also be room for generosity and for times when we are unable to give. And I would encourage you, talk to your spouse if you're married about how much you should give. 
and come next week prepared to give if you're not prepared today. Now, in just a moment, we're going to take communion and remember the grace of God together. So I want to encourage you to remember how God sacrificed for you. And I want to encourage you, as we have seen God's people give generously to his work, I want to encourage you to give generously because God promises that you will be blessed as you do that. Let's pray. Father in heaven, help us to excel here. Help us to grow in generosity. But Lord, I pray especially that we would grow in understanding your grace to us. Help us to remember the love of Jesus for us. And from that place of joy, Lord, may we give and may we give cheerfully. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.